All right, this, uh, today we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter uh, 26, about the first half of the chapter. But uh, just as we're getting started here, first let me uh, uh, make a couple comments. For the sake of you, those of you who will be listening to this uh, study, uh, either uh, by one of our CDs or uh, be listening to it, streaming it or downloading it off the Internet, Today's study will be uh, uh, the sound uh, will be a little bit different uh, than what you might be accustomed to from some of the other studies. We had a difficulty uh, in recording the study on uh, on Sunday morning, uh, so we we didn't get a recording of Sunday morning study. So I am re-recording this uh, a couple days later. Uh, so I'm not doing this in front of a live audience. I'm just speaking to those of you who happen to listen on the internet or uh, happen to listen to the CD and just uh, so that you don't miss any of the things that we actually covered in class, I wanted to make sure that this study was available to you so so you won't hear any of the normal interaction with the class that you typically hear uh, in our other studies of Genesis. But as I said, we are in chapter 26 and um, uh, we'll be looking at about the first half of the chapter, but before we do that, let's just take a few moments to kind of think about where we were last week. In last week's study, we were looking at the last part of chapter 25. We had gotten into the uh, the Taladot or the account of the generations or the Taladot of Isaac, which means we have we've really gotten into the story of, of Isaac and uh, or primarily, I should say, we've gotten into the study of Jacob and Esau, the sons of Isaac, and primarily the next number of chapters will really be the story about Esau, or excuse me, about Jacob and the things that God is doing in the life of Jacob, and and how God is bringing Jacob forward in his life of faith and walk of faith, and and getting him where he wants to be, and telling the story of how God. Uh, is working through Jacob uh, to accomplish his redemptive purposes in the world. So that's what we're going to be covering. And last week we talked about uh, the twins after they had uh, grown up some. Uh, there was this encounter there that you see there at the end of chapter 25, the encounter there over the pot of stew that uh, Jacob had cooked. And uh, so we looked at that story. So just uh, by way of reminder, so we kind of have a, in our minds where we've been so far. Uh, one of the things that we talked about last week was we talked about the uh, contrasting uh, characters, Jacob and Esau, and how in many respects uh, they're really different. Jacob is kind of this outdoorsy, or excuse me, Esau is kind of this outdoorsy kind of guy. He likes to hunt and he likes to live outdoors and he's, uh, he's just kind of a rough, uh, somebody said uh, last week, uh, he, in, in, in the way we typically think today, although it's not particularly accurate, he's kind of the man's man. Uh, Jacob, on the other hand, uh, was more of a homebody. He, kind of, he liked to stay home and live in the tent. And, and, uh, so, uh, uh, and uh, in some ways we find that Esau was, uh, was Papa's boy and Jacob was kind of a mama's boy. Uh, and in fact, uh, in reality, that's exactly what was going on is that Esau tended to favor, or excuse me, uh, Isaac tended to favor Esau and, uh, and, uh, Rebecca tended to favor Jacob. 
And uh, so you have this parental favoritism that was going on. And, and certainly that must have played a significant role in the dynamics of the family and the conflict that ensued between Jacob and Esau. And we see that there really was a significant conflict that began, of course, even in the womb, as we saw with them struggling in the womb, uh, although it was no, there was nothing particularly moral. Uh, uh, there were no moral implications of that. But after they were born, then this competition continues. And we, we talked about how Jacob, uh, throughout his life, must have contemplated and thought how he really got shortchanged. Because even though he was born only a few moments, after Esau was born, Esau is the one who gets the whole blessing. He gets the birthright. He gets the whole nine yards, so to speak. And uh, so without a doubt, this was uh, eating on Jacob's mind. And, and we see that then in this incident when, uh, when Esau comes in from the field. He's been out hunting. We don't know how long he'd been out hunting, but he comes in from the field and, he, uh, and he's famished, the Scripture says, and uh, and so he asked his brother for the, for a, a dish of a, a bowl of stew uh, that uh, Jacob had had previously cooked and had cooking there and 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 he and he asked for it and and you see that Jacob just immediately without a thought says uh, without you know any uh, apparently any time lag at all just immediately it's right at the forefront of his mind he says first sell me your birthright. Uh, so we see that that with Jacob, this was this was a big thing to him, and he was contemplating how he could get this birthright, and then ultimately the blessing. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But he was he was uh, contemplating that and thinking that probably his whole life, and this was his chance. So he was going to go for it, and and of course we know what Esau did. Then he just. Uh, he just kind of blew the whole thing off and said, I don't care about my birthright. It's no big deal to me. I'm starving to death. And, uh, of course, he wasn't. And uh, so he did. He sold his birthright. And the Scripture tells us there that in doing so, that Esau despised his birthright. And we talked about that, of course, last week. And, and one of the things that we contemplated last week is, what, does it, what did it do to the heart of God? when Esau despised his birthright. Now, it's not that it took God by surprise, of course, uh, uh, at all, but, but the birthright and the blessing is such an important thing to God. And He invests so much in it. And as we, as we go on through the story of redemption, this whole idea of, of, of God working through the birthright and the blessing and working through the children of Israel and ultimately through the children of Israel, uh, blessing all the nations. This is a big thing to God. And yet Esau just thinks nothing of it. And, and I just I thought about how, and we talked about this last week, about how in our own lives when we really invest something, invest in something, uh, that really means a lot to us and we want to entrust it to somebody else or, or give it to somebody else as a gift or whatever. And then if they just disregard it, if it means nothing to them, it hurts. And it's a painful thing and it's a sorrowful thing to us. And I just, I thought about that with Esau, how it must have grieved the heart of God that Esau thought so lightly of the things of God and the things that God had, had really offered to him. And then he turns and rejects it. And, and it was a, it's an instructive lesson to me about, and, and I hope to you too, about, about how do we respond to the, 
to God's gifts to us and God's grace to us. And, the, and of course, even the whole issue of salvation and the, the, the major spiritual gifts we have, but even in the little things that God gives to us. Do we despise them like Esau or do we, or do we really appreciate them and value them like Jacob obviously did. Now, Jacob had his problems, and we'll get into that, and we'll explore that in excruciating detail as we go forward in his story. And, and clearly, he goes entirely wrong, and it goes about it entirely wrong in how he tries to secure the blessing and the birthright to himself. But, but, but nevertheless, we do see in Jacob that he valued it, he wanted it, he cherished it. And how much that must have meant, of course, to the heart of God is instructive to me. We did talk last week, too, about is there a difference between the birthright and the blessing? And, of course, in, as we said, in the minds of the characters of the story and, and apparently in, in Isaac and Rebecca's mind and in Esau and Jacob's mind, there appears to be a distinction between the birthright and the blessing. But we see that in God's mind, it, there really isn't. The two are, uh, the two are uh, inextricably linked together. Now, they may not be exactly the same thing. They may not be synonymous but they are interwoven together and you can't separate the two. So we see in the book of Hebrews when God talks about what Isaac did here, or excuse me, what uh, Esau did here with, the, uh, uh, with despising the birthright, that in, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, the Lord makes it clear that, that what, he was really, uh, what he was really losing there, what, he's, what he was really forfeiting there was, uh, was the blessing. And, uh, and the birthright combined. And so uh, they really are one. And we talked about that uh, uh, last week. Now, let's pick it up in chapter 26. And I'll, I want to read the first 17 verses. Uh, and we'll try to get through all those verses uh, in this study today. Um, and, and then we'll take, stop and, and do some overview of chapter 26. And, and then try to get into the meat of the passage. But beginning in chapter 26 and verse 1, he says... Now there was a famine in the land, besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt, stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands. Then I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, and I will give to your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac lived in Gerar. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she is my sister, for he was afraid to say my wife, thinking the men of the place shall kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. It came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife Rebekah. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, certainly she is your wife. How then did you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I said I might die on account of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. 
So Abimelech charged all the people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. For he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household, so that the Philistines envied him. Now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are too powerful for us. And Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Now, there are several questions that come to mind as we, as we tackle verse uh, chapter 26 here. And, uh, and one of them right off the, right off the bat is, is uh, kind of the chronology of these events. When do these events happen? And uh, it's, it's really not clear uh, when they happen. Uh, there's, there's no real time frame given for us until the very end of the verse, end of the chapter, when we find out that, that Esau is 40 years old at, uh, uh, at the end when he's describing the, uh, the events at the end of the chapter. So, so we really don't know uh, exactly when uh, the time period of chapter 26 is covering, but it is a little bit difficult to believe that the, that chapter 26 follows, uh, uh, specifically chronologically follows exactly after t- chapter 25. Uh, and, and one reason for that is because when he talks here in the passage that we just read about, um, about the, uh, the ruse that Isaac carries on regarding his wife Rebecca calling uh, her his sister, uh, it, it seems quite unlikely that he would have been able to carry out that ruse for any period of time had he had children, or at least if he'd had children that were grown and obvious enough to be running around in the fields and obviously his children, uh, then it would have been very difficult to convince people that Rebecca was his sister instead of his wife. So, so it's very possible that at least the earlier events of chapter 26 precede the birth of the children. And so uh, I tend to look at chapter 26 as, as more kind of a parenthetical passage between chapter 25 and 27. And it's kind of just a description of Isaac's life. You'll notice that in chapter 25, uh, we had earlier in chapter 25 and in chapter 24, we've been talking all about Isaac. And we've been talking about, uh, oh, Isaac getting married to Rebecca and how they found a wife for Rebecca and then uh, all the events early in his life and then about the twins being conceived, about Rebecca's barrenness first and then about the twins uh, being conceived, and it was all uh, kind of about Isaac and Rebecca. And then, as you move on in chapter 25, the storyline shifts and begins to focus uh, chiefly on the twins, on Esau and Jacob. And uh, uh, and then we so we go through that story about uh, the selling of the birthright and the despising of the birthright. And, and, and so by now we're focused completely on on uh, Jacob and Esau. And then we get to chapter 26 and it's kind of like we get a little kind of whiplash here because suddenly we're jerked back and we're talking about Isaac again. Okay, So all of chapter 26 is essentially about Isaac. And, uh, and then you get to chapter 27 and then we leap forward again and we start talking about the twins. And we'll get, when we get into chapter 27, we'll be talking about the, 
that conflict between the twins again and the issue about the deception and the stealing of the uh, of the uh, of the blessing. Uh, so so in other words, we have the story of of Jacob and Esau in chapter 25. And then we and then we kind of go back and talk about dad for a while. We talk about Isaac and a little bit about Rebecca. And then in chapter 27, we leap forward again and start talking about the twins. And the question is, why does the narrator, why does the Holy Spirit speaking through Moses, why does he record things in this way? Well, one reason I believe is because uh, chapter 26 is really parenthetical. Chapter 26 is, is, uh, is telling us some important things about Isaac that we need to know in order to understand what's going on with Jacob and Esau. And so, as you look down, um, as you look down through the chapter, what we've read so far, and then even the, the latter part of the chapter that we didn't take time to read today, as you look down through this chapter, you're going to find that there's a that there's a there's a striking theme of continuity in chapter 26 uh, between Isaac and his father Abraham. So. And it's really difficult to miss. It starts right there in verse one, where he says, now there was a famine in the land. He says, now, this isn't the same famine that happened in the days. There. So we're suddenly we are reminded that not only is there a famine in the in the life of Isaac, but there was a famine also in the life of Abraham. And there are other striking parallels uh, between the life of Isaac and Abraham that we see in this chapter. God comes to Abraham clear back there in chapter 12 and speaks to Abraham and says to Abraham uh, and talks to Abraham about where he wants Abraham to live. He says, I want you to leave this place, which was Haran, of course, and and I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you, uh, which was, of course, ultimately the land of Canaan. We have here in this chapter, we have a similar appearance of God to Isaac, talking to Isaac about where he wanted him to live. In this case, it's just the opposite. Instead of telling Isaac he wanted him to leave and go somewhere else, he tells, he, he tells Isaac not to go somewhere else, but to stay where he is. But the point is that there still is this appearance of God and that God is involved in Isaac's life and where Isaac lives and has a will and a plan as far as Isaac's uh, place of, of living and residence, uh, just like he did with his father. And then you have this thing about the famine, and then and and with both the famine in, uh, that Abraham encountered and the famine that Isaac encountered, you have this question of Egypt comes up, and you have Abraham when he encounters famine, he goes down to Egypt, and of course we know that story. We studied that uh, clear back in chapter twelve, but he goes down uh, into Egypt. Now, when Isaac encounters a famine, it tells us that he went to Gerar, but when he gets to Gerar. He encounters the Lord. The Lord appears to Isaac. It's the first time when the Lord specifically appears to Isaac himself to talk to Isaac. And so the Lord appears to Isaac and he tells him, don't go down into Egypt. And so it seems like that, that though in verse one it says he went to Gerar, it seems like his intent was ultimately to go to Egypt just like Abraham did. But in this, talk, in this case, the Lord specifically speaks to him and prohibits him from going uh, to Egypt. But still, this issue of, of the famine and the association of the famine with Egypt, we see that in the life of Isaac as we see it in the life of, uh, of Abraham. Uh, and uh, then we have, uh, uh, we have other, uh, other parallels between the life of, of, 
of, of Isaac in the life of Abraham. After the incident in Egypt, uh, even though even though Abraham sinned in this in this uh, thing in Egypt regarding calling his wife his sister, which of course is another parallel with the life of Isaac. Isaac does exactly the same thing in this chapter. Uh, Abraham, of course, did it twice, and we have this one recording of of Isaac doing it. Actually, I should say Abraham did it a number of times, and he gets caught at it twice. Uh, but but we have that same we have Isaac doing the same thing, so we have that parallel. But what's interesting is following that that situation with Abraham where he gets caught uh, in Egypt uh, in that lie and, and Pharaoh confronts him over it. Uh, the net result in Abraham's life or the thing that happens immediately after that in the life of Abraham is he's greatly blessed. And that was kind of a paradox to us. We struggled with that when we looked at the passage. Why does the guy sin like this? And then he gets blessed. But that's what happened in Abraham's life. But you have this great blessing and Abraham gets uh, increases in wealth dramatically right after this thing uh, regarding uh, regarding uh, the ruse that he carried on regarding Sarah. And and we have the same thing in the life of Isaac. Isaac uh, uh, goes to Gerar and he carries out this ruse about his wife and eventually he gets caught at it. And the whistle gets blown on him, so to speak. And then right after that in the story, we see he gets just really blessed and he gets a hundredfold of his crops and and, and, and there's and, and there's this uh, there's this discussion about how wealthy he gets. And so we see this parallel with the life of Abraham. And then the other thing that's striking is is that in the life of Abraham, after he went to Egypt and, and he came back and he was all blessed and, and he was so wealthy. And one of the things that happened as a result of his wealth is he had conflict in his life. And that conflict, of course, was the conflict with the herdsmen of Lot. And so there's this tension between Abraham and Lot. And they have to resolve this tension somehow. And ultimately, uh, Abraham kind of gives way. He says, Lot, you just do whatever you want to do and I'll go the other way. And so Abraham just kind of lets Lot have his uh, have the best of the land or whatever he wanted. And Abraham just chooses to go the opposite direction. We have the same type of thing in the life of Isaac here. Is that right after this time of blessing, in fact, as a result of the time of blessing, just like in the life of Abraham, in the life of Isaac, we have this conflict that arises. The, right, the, the conflict arises specifically because of this great wealth that, he's, that, that, that has become his. And so you have this envy of the Philistines and this conflict arises. And they're filling the wells, uh, plugging up the wells and that sort of thing. And so there's this conflict. And then the king of uh, Gerar comes to Abraham, or comes, excuse me, comes to Isaac and he says, he says, you got to leave. You got to go out of here because we just uh, uh, we're afraid of you and you're too powerful for us. So there's this conflict. And we see in this case again that Isaac, like Abraham, kind of gives way and he backs off and he just peacefully leaves and he goes uh, he goes uh, off to another place to live. So we see all these striking parallels or this remarkable continuity between the life of Abraham and the life of Isaac in chapter 26. And so it's, it's, it's pretty clear then that this parenthetical chapter, this parenthetical narrative that is stuck right in the middle of the story of the conflict between Jacob and Esau, that, it, that it's trying to tell us something about, about the connection between Abraham and Isaac 
and it's parenthetical to the story of Jacob and Esau. In other words, it, it in some way explains or illuminates the story of Jacob and Esau. This continuity between Abraham and Isaac is, is illustrative or illuminates and gives us understanding of the story of Jacob and Esau. Well, how does it do that? Well, one of the things that you'll notice uh, as you're in, in the passage that we read today is you have the Lord comes to Isaac and he speaks to Isaac and he repeats to Isaac uh, almost verbatim. He repeats these blessings and promises that he had given to Isaac's father, Abraham. In other words, one of the things that the narrator is trying to impress upon us here is that all of this stuff that we studied about Abraham for all those many weeks that we were studying the life of Abraham and we were studying about God working in his life and God blessing him and God giving him these promises and, and, and God's plan to, to not only bless him but to bless all the nations of the earth through him. All this stuff that we were seeing about Abraham what the narrator is trying to tell us is that now all has been transferred to Isaac. So in other words, Isaac's kind of the second Abraham. Okay. Abraham is now passing off the scene or has passed off the scene, but, but, but God's plan through Abraham has not passed off the scene. What God was doing in Abraham has not, has not passed off the scene, but it has rather been transferred over, has been passed down now to Isaac. And Isaac is now the second Abraham. So Isaac now has all these blessings and all these promises and the presence of God and all those things that Abraham had now Isaac himself has, okay? And they've been passed on to him, okay? Of course, we know all this theologically, but, but, but it's important for us to stop and think about it because the Holy Spirit, as he constructs the story here, as he tells us these stories and he puts them together in a certain order, he's taken time to stop and pause and give us a reminder here that all that was Abraham's is now Isaac's. So we see it's now in Isaac's hand. It's Isaac's possession. It belongs to Isaac. And the point is that, that we are right in the middle of the story of the tug of war between Jacob and Esau. And that Esau, by birthright, has certain things that are his, that belong to him. But that he despises those things and that Jacob covets them and desires them and passionately wants somehow to secure them so much so that he's not even really willing to wait upon God. I don't know if it even occurred to him yet to wait upon God. That's going to come later in his life. But, but he's just consumed with this passionate desire to, to have this, this birthright and this blessing. And what chapter 26 does is it reminds us of what's at stake. It reminds us of what the conflict is about. It reminds us of, of, of why Isaac and, or excuse me, uh, Jacob and Esau are at such odds with one another. Because, because of this great treasure that Isaac now possesses in his hand. 
And he should, by all right, culturally, socially speaking, it should, by all right, he should pass it on to Esau. But Jacob is determined that, that all that promise and all that blessing and all that stuff that Abraham had had, <coughs> excuse me, and now belongs to Isaac, he wants that. He desires that. He covets it, if we can use that term. And so, the point of chapter 26 is to remind us in part, not only of the continuity between Abraham and Isaac, but to remember, to remind us what really is at stake here. What is it that Jacob so, so vigorously and passionately desires? And what is it that, that Esau so callously and indifferently despises? And then ultimately we'll find regrets his decision and seeks for repentance, but he can't find it even though, as Hebrews says, he seeks for it with tears. So, so that kind of sets the framework for the chapter and, uh, and, and why it's here and, and why it seems to kind of interrupt the flow of the story, as we say. Uh, this helps to explain that. Well, with that being said, let's take some time then to, to actually look at the passage in detail that uh, in some detail anyway, that we that we've already read here today. And uh, I should just uh, just kind of give you an idea of where we're going. The, the passage that we've looked at today uh, through verse 17, one through 17, you can kind of break it down into three uh, three sections. First, you have Isaac going to Gerar in verses one through six. And then you have the wife's sister deception or ruse uh, story in verses 7 through 11. And then you have the whole theme of blessing and conflict that begins in verse 12 down through 17 and actually continues on into uh, the, uh, the, next, the rest of the chapter. And the rest of the chapter, we're going to be talking all about these wells, all these wells that got filled and dug and filled and dug and, and quarrels over. And, and, and it seems a little... Uh, paradoxical or, or, uh, or I should say seems a, a bit uh, maybe mundane and why do we you know why do we care about all this but we'll discover that as we go through that part of the story but this idea of blessing and conflict begins in verse 12 uh, and really continues then down through a good deal of the rest of the chapter so first let's let's think about those first six verses or so so in the story about about Isaac going to Gerar now uh, <coughs> Uh, incidentally, I should mention that there's also a, a parallel uh, between Isaac and Abraham. I didn't mention this. The whole Gerard thing is in itself a parallel between Isaac and, and Abraham, I should say. Uh, but, um, but we have then this famine that occurs uh, besides the famine that occurred in the days of Abraham. And the famine necessitates uh, Isaac finding a place to, of course, support this massive household that he has, and it's going to grow even greater. And uh, uh, and by massive, we're probably talking in terms of of probably well over a thousand servants and servants' wives, slaves and slaves' wives, and children and 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 all that sort of thing. So it's probably a, quite a massive household. But but it, it necessitates him finding a place to support them, and so uh, so he travels uh, to Gerar, as I mentioned, probably originally intending to go on uh, down to Egypt. But one of the things that strikes me about this is we have another famine. We had a famine in the life of Abraham. Now we have a famine in the life of Isaac. 
And as we go forward in the story, we're going to find that there's a famine also in the life of Jacob. And these famines all play a role in their lives and in the unfolding of the story of their lives. But what's what really is important, you can imagine these guys are when they're facing famine, you know, like us, they don't know the future. They're just encountering a situation and there's, you know, there's no rain or whatever, something, maybe disease or whatever is causing famine and the crops aren't growing. And, the, you know, if there's no rain, they don't have water to feed their animals. and They have these massive flocks and or, uh, herds and, and uh, uh, cattle and all that sort of thing and, and no water to to give them to drink or no crops to feed them with or whatever. And, and uh, you know, it's a very... You get in a situation like that, it's pretty frightening, isn't it? In our lives, sometimes we have times of famine, times of drought in our own lives, uh, financially, our job. You know, maybe we're out of a job or out of work or, or uh, we have, um, you know, a number of financial problems in our life all of a sudden, maybe medical bills or problems with our cars or, you know, just all kinds of things create uh, these famines that we experience materially, so to speak, in our life, uh, not to even mention of other kinds of famines, spiritual, emotional, and that sort of thing. But but we encounter these famines and, and it gets pretty scary when we encounter those famines. But what is instructive in this is we think about these three famines in the life of the three patriarchs is that is that they, these famines never interfered with God's purposes in their life. There was, never, there was never any moment at which the famines that these three guys encountered ever disrupted or obstructed the purposes of God and the promises of God and the blessings of God in their lives. Now, I don't know if they saw it that way. I don't know what they were thinking or what they were seeing uh, from their human perspective. But as we look back on their story, what we see is God was in control all the time. And there was no threat to the promises of God. There was no threat to the purposes of God. And there was no threat to the blessings of God, even though these these famines occurred. And in fact, not only that, but we, as we see in apparently here in the life of Isaac, and we see it very clearly in the life of Jacob, that, that God was actually using these famines to accomplish His purposes in their lives. And it's really instructive to us, isn't it? As we encounter in our life various kinds of famine, whether it's material famine like we're talking about here, or, or as I said, emotional famine, or relational famine, or, or even spiritual famine at times. And it's very easy to think that these things somehow are going to interfere with God's goodness and God's love and God's care and God's provision for us and God's plan and His purpose and His blessing in our life. But they don't. They don't have... If anything, they just simply further the purpose and plan of God. And if we could somehow get a grip on that, uh, my, we'd be able to face those situations so much easier, wouldn't we? I don't know if it would be easy, but at least we could do it with great faith and confidence in God. Well, so Isaac goes down to Gerar and then the Lord appears to him. And as I mentioned, this is the first time when God specifically appears uh, to Isaac to speak to Isaac. But we'll elaborate on that in just a moment. Uh, but, he, but he comes to Isaac and what does he tell him? 
He says, don't go to Egypt. Uh, there in verse uh, 2, it says, the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. So he has specific instruction. Now, we don't know whether uh, God said anything to Abraham about whether he should go to Egypt or not. I, I tend to believe he should not have gone, but there's no indication that God specifically made that clear to him. But he does certainly do so for Isaac here. And then he says, stay in the land of which I will tell you, sojourn in this land and I will be with you. And and what the Lord is saying to Isaac here is uh, he uses two words there. Notice in the New American there, it translates it uh, in verse two. He says, stay in the land. OK. And then in verse three, he says, sojourn in this land. And, and those two words have slightly different meanings to them. And the idea of, <coughs> excuse me, just a minute. The idea there of staying there in verse two is is it communicates a. Uh, uh, in the Hebrew there, it communicates a very sense, a, a very temporary, uh, very short term uh, idea. OK, so the idea is you're just going to be here for a while. You're not here permanently. OK, uh, and then he says in verse three, he says to sojourn in this land. Now, obviously, that also has uh, some sense of, of temporariness, but 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 actually it's more long term than the Hebrew word is translated stay in verse two. So there's a more long term sense to uh, that's communicated there in verse three. But it's the idea of being a sojourner or an alien. So even though you're here for uh, perhaps an extended period of time, uh, you are still an alien. You are a sojourner. And that's how you see it. So the, so the sense of what God is communicating to Isaac here is, OK, I want you to stay here in Gerar, but you're not permanent here. You're only temporary here. And and so even though you may be here for a for a uh, an extended period of time, however long you're here, you must keep in mind that you are a sojourner, that you are an alien. This isn't your land. This isn't your place. This isn't your home yet. Well, he goes on then to say, eventually it will be. Eventually I will give it to you and to your descendants. Okay, but I have not done so yet. And so until I do so, you have to view yourself as an alien and a stranger. That's the mindset that I want you to have. And then he goes on. And he and he gives the these promises, which, of course, we're familiar with because of the same promises, uh, basically, that he gave to Abraham. And he says, I'll be with you and I'll bless you when he says I'll be with you there. It's that sense of God's presence with him, which communicates not only the idea of God being with him and accompanying him, but it also communicates the idea of God's protection over his life. So God is saying, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to go with you wherever you go and whatever you do. And while you're here in this land as a sojourner, I'm going to be here with you, even though you are still a sojourner. And and then he says, I'll bless you. And to your descendants, I will give these lands and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. Now, this this is a significant statement here on the part of God. Because when we think back, we ask ourselves, well, when did God give this oath to Abraham? And you think about that for a minute. When did God give that oath to Abraham? Well, he gave the oath to God to Abraham at Mount Moriah. And we'll recall when we looked at that passage and we studied that God gave that oath, the reason that God gave the oath 
was because he wanted to make his promise to Abraham even more certain than it already was. In other words, Abraham had God had given promises to Abraham and Abraham had believed God and trusted God and lived his life these many years uh, by now from the time that he had gotten his first instruction from the Lord there in chapter 12. It had been like 35 years or so or perhaps more that, that Abraham had trusted God and believed God and now he had gone to Moriah with Isaac and, and he had been willing to offer his son Isaac uh, to the Lord there on, on Mount Moriah. All because he believed God's promise. And then God said to him, because you believed me like this, because you trusted me, and you would not withhold your son, your only son from me, you were willing to give me everything because you had complete confidence and trust in me, because you've trusted me like this, I'm going to make my word even more certain to you by giving you an oath. And God had never done that before. God had never given to Abraham, or for all that I know, to anybody, God had never given an oath whereby he swore upon something. But since he could be swear by nothing greater, he swore by himself, because there's nothing greater than God. So God couldn't swear by something greater than himself, so he swore by himself. And that's what he's referring to here in this chapter. Well, as you remember that story, who's standing there in the background? Isaac. So Isaac is a young lad, a young man, as I suggested when we looked at that story. Uh, I think he was probably uh, in his uh, uh, late preteens or very early teenage years. So he's a, he's a, he's a young man, as you, as you might say. And, and, he's this, and he's standing there. After his father has, was going to offer him and then the angel comes and spares him and, and you know, all this stuff is going on. Poor Isaac, his head's probably spinning at that point. And then God, through the angel Lord, he comes and he speaks to Abraham and he swears to Abraham an oath. And now God is saying to Isaac himself, God comes for the first time and appears to Isaac himself and says to Isaac himself, he says, you remember that oath. Well, this is what I'm doing in your life. I'm doing in your life what I promised, what you saw me promise your father and what you saw me swear to, to your father. That's what I am doing in your life now and in the lives of your descendants. And then he says, because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. Well, What's interesting there, and we don't have time to really look at this in, in, in detail, but I just want to refer to it, is, is that's really a formulaic expression there, or construction, where he says, uh, Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And if, you'll, if, you, if you turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 1, you'll see that exact same formula. That God, after talking to the children of Israel about all the things he'd done and how he'd brought them out of Egypt and everything, and he's getting ready to tell them that they need to obey his laws and stuff, he uses this very same formula. And what's interesting about this is this formula is really a reference to the law of Moses. It certainly is there in Deuteronomy chapter 11. It's a reference to at least the moral law uh, that Moses had given to them. And that their responsibility was to keep his charges, commandments, his statutes, and his laws. And the Hebrew words there, it's translated a little different in, in, in our English Bibles from the way it's translated here in, in uh, Genesis 26, but, it's the, but they're the same Hebrew words. 
And so it's the same formula. And so what we discover about Abraham is that Abraham had kept the law of God. But he didn't have the law of God, did he? He certainly didn't have the law of Moses. It wasn't going to be written for hundreds of years from now. And yet, the narrator here, representing to us what God said to Abraham, uses the formula that the children of Israel, as they read this story, would associate with the law of Moses. And, and, and the point is, is that Abraham, by faith, because of his intimate walk with God, kept, uh, at least in, in essence anyway, kept the moral law of Moses without ever having it written down for him to read. How did he do that? He did it because as Jeremiah talks about the new covenant, he had the law of God written on his heart. And we discover something then about about this guy Abraham, don't we? We discover something about his walk with God and his relationship with God that he, he knew God so well that he knew what God's laws were even though they weren't written down. And he not only knew what they were, but he kept them. And he obeyed God. So it's really instructive and encouraging to us to think about, isn't it? So it says Isaac lived in Gerar. And then we have this story uh, about, uh, about uh, the, th- the thing about his wife. And of course, the first thing that comes to our minds is, hey, we've seen this before. We saw it twice in the life of Abraham. And as I mentioned, when we studied the, those two events in the life of Abraham, that in reality, even though there are two uh, recorded instances in Abraham's life when he does this, it's pretty clear from the story that, that it really happened a lot of, uh, uh, much more often than that. But, they didn't, that. but there were two significant events or times when it happened when he kind of got the whistle blown on him. Okay. We might ask ourselves, why did he do it again in Gerar if he was so unsuccessful in Egypt? Well, I think it's because he did it a lot. And it just so happened one time when he was in Egypt, it didn't work. But in his mind, it did work. That's the, tr- that's the trap of living by the flesh. Is that oftentimes we live by the flesh, it seems to work for us. And those few times when it doesn't work for us, it doesn't occur to us that the reason it didn't work is because we're living by the flesh. And so Abraham, uh, who apparently did this on a number of occasions, gets, uh, gets caught doing it twice and it creates significant problems in his life, which of course the scriptures tell us about. But now we have Isaac doing it. Well, why does Isaac do it? Well, this is a classic case, isn't it, of like father, like son. It's a classic case where a son's grown up seeing that this is the way his father handles this problem. And rather than trusting God and believing God and being confident that God would protect him and protect Sarah, Abraham thinks that in this area, even though he trusts God in so many other areas of his life, in this area, he doesn't really fully trust God. And so he's got to construct some human mechanism by which to protect himself. And Isaac has watched this over and over again as he's growing up in his life. And he goes, well, this is just the way you do it. When you go to a strange land where there are people who don't fear God or you don't think they fear God, the way you make sure you don't get killed for your wife is you lie about her and say she is my sister. Now, now again, as with Abraham, yes, as with Abraham, 
And Sarah, Rebecca, was related to him and was in one sense his sister. But that's certainly not what he intended to communicate. It wasn't he was trying to tell the people of Gerar, she's my distant cousin. What he was trying to mislead the people of Gerar to believe is that she was his immediate sister. <laughs> and that therefore, uh, you know, if they really wanted her, they could have her. Uh, just don't kill me for her. Okay. So, so he's just repeating the mistake that his father has made. And it's really an ugly scene, isn't it? It's, it's just, you know, you think about the jeopardy that he places his wife in out of his, his own fear and his own apprehension and his own presumption. And that's what happens in our lives, isn't it? When we, when we don't trust God. See, he had the promise of God that God would be with him and protect him. And he had the very clear evidence that God had given him this wife, Rebecca. And God, you know, it was all part of God's plan. All, he had the promise of God's uh, of descendants and all that sort of thing. He had all these promises, and he had all, and yet his fear got the better of him. And that's what happens with us, isn't it? When we forget the promises of God, we look at we look at circumstances, we look at the situations around us, we look at our adversaries, our enemies, and and we fear, and we get we get struck by fear and we forget the promises of God and we walk in the flesh and we cause all kinds of problems and that's exactly what happens here. And once again, a man of God, as with Abraham, once again, a man of God's credibility with the world is ruined or at least hindered or damaged because he's unwilling to trust God. So, he lives there for quite some time under those circumstances and with that ruse and gets away with it for quite a while and he probably thinks it's working pretty good. And then after he's been there for a while, it says Abimelech looks out his window and he sees Isaac caressing his wife. And the whole, you know, the whole cover is blown and then you have this conflict develops between these guys which has later repercussions, I believe, uh, as the story unfolds. <clears throat> so we really have this kind of ugly situation here. But one of the things that's interesting to me here is how in the middle of this really ugly, dirty story of Isaac's lack of faith and walking in the flesh and lying about his wife and conflict with the world over that, in the middle of the story is this little gem, this little precious gem about Isaac and Rebecca. And what is it? You'll notice it says he's doing what? He's caressing her, it says in the New American. Now, the interesting thing about that word that's translated caressing there in the New American is it's the same word from which we get the name Isaac. And you'll remember that the name Isaac means laughter. So, in fact, some translations translate this that Isaac was laughing with Sarah. But he was obviously not laughing like he told the joke or something. It's obviously he's laughing. He's doing something with her about which they are laughing, if you will, or having a really good time. Something that very clearly indicates they aren't brother and sister. They're husband and wife. So the New American translates it caressing. But, but you get the idea that they're really enjoying it. And one commentator suggests that a good way to translate this is that Isaac was Isaacing with his wife. 
and uh, uh, and I think that it's, uh, I think the King James says he was sporting with her. Okay, so the idea is they're doing something kind of intimate and personal that a husband and wife would do, not what a brother and sister would do. And they're really enjoying one another, and they're really loving one another, and they're enjoying their love for one another. Right in the middle of this muddy, dirty story. And, and the thing that's instructive to me about that is it reminds me, we're going to see some negative things. We've already seen some about Isaac and Rebecca's relationship. We've already seen that, that they're not really together on this thing about raising kids. And one favors one child and one favors the other child. And then that's going to lead in chapter 27 to that whole deception thing where, where Rebecca really clearly, explicitly and intentionally deceives her husband. And so it's very easy for us when we look at these kind of negative things about Isaac and Rebecca to forget that clear back at their beginning when they first met, it says Isaac loved Rebecca. And now we find out that, well, it wasn't just at the beginning. They still love one another. They still love one another. We did see that. Uh, we did see uh, earlier about Isaac praying for Rebecca. And so what's instructive to me about this is that is that even though there's problems in their marriage and there's problems in their relationship, we shouldn't look at their relationship strictly in those terms. But we should remember that even with those problems and even with those conflicts in their relationship, they really loved each other. They really loved each other. And they really enjoyed each other. And, and it reminds us in our own marriages, in our own relationships, that so it's very easy when conflicts arise and difficulties arise in our relationship, it's very easy to lose sight of our love for our mate or our mate's love for us. And I'm really encouraged here to realize that here's Rebecca and she's in this really precarious situation. Isaac's put her in a very difficult place. And it wasn't because he was concerned for her. It was because he was concerned for himself. But even though that's true, she's still enjoying his love and he's enjoying hers. It's really instructive, isn't it? When my wife and I were first married, in fact, maybe even before we were getting married, we talked about we talked about the fact that in the course of our marriage, we were sometimes going to do things that hurt one another. And, and we just agreed together that, that when we did that, we were going to try to remember that when somebody, when, when, my, when she did something to hurt me or I did something to hurt her, that, that if she did something to hurt me, I was going to try to remember she still loves me. And what, even though she's doing something here that I don't like or it's, it's really unpleasant or it hurts in some way, I'm going to believe the best about her. And I'm going to believe that she loves me. And, and, and so, so throughout our marriage, we've had conflicts in our marriage. We've had some pretty big conflicts in our marriage, uh, as I'm sure all of you have. Uh, we've had conflicts in our marriage. But through it all, I've tried to keep that foremost in our mind. That whatever my wife does that I don't like or that hurts me or that I don't think is right or whatever, that I still am confident that she loves me. And I hope she still is doing that uh, towards me as well because I've certainly given her many, many reasons why she could perhaps conclude 
otherwise. So, but I really do love her, even though oftentimes I fail her and I hurt her. So, so we see that, of course, in the life of Isaac and Rebecca. Well, so then, of course, Abimelech confronts Isaac on it, and and the resol- the resolution is that Abimelech charges his people not to lay a hand on her. And then finally, we have the last part of the story here where Isaac goes out and he sows in the land, verse 12, and he reaps in the same year a hundredfold. Now, remember, this is in the middle of a famine. In the middle of a famine, Isaac goes out and he reaps a hundredfold. Here again, it's just the blessing of God on his life. And so he gets rich and he gets richer and richer. He has, uh, it says... uh, he has possessions of flocks and herds and a great household. And we remember how great Abraham's household was clear back in chapter 14. Probably, uh, as, we, as I estimated back there, probably uh, a thousand or so people in his household. You can't imagine how big Isaac's household is. It's as big as a city-state, which is what Abimelech's the king of. Abimelech is the king of a, basically what amounts to a city-state or something a little larger than that. And I, and I imagine here that by now, Isaac's household, even though he is a sojourner and an alien in the land, that his household is probably uh, 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 reaching uh, the same size, approximate same size as Abimelech's entire kingdom. That's several thousand people. And so, of course, this becomes very threatening to the Philistines and they start retaliating against Isaac and and. And so we see the same problem that Abraham had, that with the blessing of God oftentimes comes conflict with others who become jealous, who become envious of God's blessings in our lives. Isaac has done nothing here to warrant their envy and their distrust. Well, he has done something to warrant a little bit of distrust on their part. Uh, but Isaac is a peace-loving man, and he's uh, he's certainly not interested in going uh, in doing anything to injure these people. But they are envious of him; they want his wealth, and so they begin to stop up, stomp up the well, stomp, excuse me, stop up the wells that Abraham his father had dug. And then eventually, Abimelech just comes to him and says, "You go away. Well, you're too powerful for us." We're basically, saying we're afraid of you. Now, at that point, if I were Isaac, I might say, well, listen, I'm not doing anything and I'm here and I'm settled. I've got all these, you know, hundreds or thousands of people that I'm responsible for and I've got them all settled in their tents and we're doing well and we've got a good crop going here and I'm not going anywhere. And, and, and I don't have to go. I don't have any, I'm not doing anything to threaten you or hurt you, so I don't have to go. That might be how I would respond, but that's not how Isaac responds. Isaac responds by packing his bags and going on. He just packs his bags and moves. And we're going to see, actually, he does it more than once. And I ask myself, why did Isaac do that? Why didn't Isaac stand his ground? Why didn't Isaac say, listen, you're just being presumptuous here. And I'm, you know, I'm settled here and I've got a good thing going here and and there's no reason for me to leave and I'm not going to hurt you. And uh, so, no. I have my rights. Why should I go? Why doesn't Isaac do that? Because Isaac knows. He's a sojourner. He's an alien. He's a stranger. And so Isaac acts here as the peacemaker. And he leaves. 
and he goes away. He tries to diminish the conflict. Just like Abraham did with Lot. He tries to diminish, this, diminish the conflict because he is by nature a peacemaker. And he can be a peacemaker because he's a sojourner. He doesn't have his heart invested in Gerar. He doesn't have his grip firmly grasped around Gerar. He holds it loosely in his hand because God told him at the outset when he got there, however long you're here, just remember it's going to be temporary and you're a sojourner and you're an alien. And in our lives, how many times does conflict arise because we've lost sight of the fact in this life that we are sojourners and others. We stomp our feet. We stand our ground. We say, you can't treat me like that and you can't do this to me and it's not right. And, and we insist on our rights and we insist on the way people, that people treat us in a certain way. And we get hurt and we get offended when they don't because we've lost sight of the fact that this isn't home, folks. And if we just realize that all the things that we have here and everything that's, that's, that, that God has entrusted to us here and is, is all temporary because we're just passing through. And it's all going to, as we used to say in a ministry I was in many, many years, it's all going to burn up one day. Everything I have, my home, my car, you know, uh, everything I have is all going to burn up. The only thing that's not is my relationships with people. And so why do I cling to these things and demand my rights and insist on things at the cost of relationship? Isaac doesn't do that because Isaac is a sojourner and an alien. Well, there's much more to come as we go on. And as I said, next week we'll get into the part all about all these wells and everything that was going on there. And we'll get into that next week. So uh, uh, God bless you and... Uh, and uh, we'll talk again in a week.